for me, it starts at the very beginning of the project. I really love going deep. I want to know everything there is to know about how their business or community or organization currently functions so that we can then design something that is tailored to all of that and that works and collaborates well with it. I used to balk at project management because it felt like the systems I was supposed to follow were just imposing rules on things that didn't need rules. I would get it done. And I'd do it my own way, gosh darn it. But then at some point, probably the 341st time I didn't have enough time to execute a project the way I really wanted to execute it, I realized that project management is as much about honing your craft as it is about making sure you hit deadlines or don't forget a step. Teasing out the bits and pieces of how projects happen helps us make better stuff, whether what you're making is a publicity campaign, a book, a set of complex financial reports, or a podcast. I'm Tara McMullen, and you're listening to What Works, the show that transcends the hype and brings you candid conversations about what's really working to run and grow a small business today. This month, Sean and I have been working hard on the next phase of our project management at Yellow House Media. Now, if you haven't heard, Yellow House is the full-service podcast production agency we co-founded back in August. And the way we look at it, every step in the process of producing a podcast is an opportunity to make a show better, to make it more engaging for the listener and to drive more results for the business owner. But to fully take advantage of those opportunities, we have to have our process down. We can't just throw an episode together. We have to carefully and intentionally work each step of the process so that both the host that we're working with and our team has the greatest freedom to innovate and improve. The structure of project management gives us the space to hone our craft, to get creative, and to make something great. And the better we get at making great podcasts, the better our project management gets too. Now, my guest today has had a similar experience learning the ins and outs of event planning and hosting kick-ass conferences. Isaac Watson is the founder of Kick-Ass Conferences, an event strategy and production studio based in the Pacific Northwest. Isaac helps community leaders develop and deliver transformative events for their audiences that inspire them to build a better world. So far, he's planned and managed events that have touched over 21,000 lives across the U.S. and Europe. Now, Isaac is a natural event planner. I know because I've attended a number of events he's planned, and I even hired him to plan a conference for me four years ago. But Isaac hasn't just relied on his natural aptitude for creating meaningful and engaging experiences. Instead, he's designed a process he can rely on to pull off one great event after another. This process and the way he manages his events is clearly a product of the way he's honed his craft over the years. He notices what works, he notices patterns, he notices the things that go unnoticed, and then he adapts the way he manages future projects. In this conversation, Isaac and I talk about how things have evolved since his very first event, the five phases that every event goes through from vision to completion, how he works with clients within that process, and what it's like when it's go time and an event is live. Now, let's find out what works for Isaac Watson. 
Isaac Watson, welcome to What Works. Thank you so much for joining me. I'm so excited to be here, Tara. I am also excited for you to be here too. And I'm so excited to get um, sort of the behind the scenes story of how you actually manage the conferences and events that you put on. But before we get into that, I would love for you to just tell us the story of the very first event that you produced. Oh, I would love to. So wind back the clock to 2011. Uh, I was working at an art college and doing this volunteer project uh, that was in partnership with Etsy. They were doing a bunch of professional development stuff. And they uh, wanted to put on this global conference in different cities. It was called Hello Etsy. And they asked our volunteer team to put together a Portland edition of it. Um, so we they had some broadcast content that they were pushing out, but they also wanted us to find some local speakers and uh, workshop leaders. And I worked with this team of about 10 people to essentially produce this conference start to finish. Etsy gave us a little bit of a framework around how to do it, but um, all the logistics came down to us. And uh, I that was like my first chance to really contribute to an entire conference experience. I'd been doing some workshops and small events, artist receptions, things like that, that had kind of wet my whistle. But uh, that that conference was like the first time that I got to bring a bunch of people into a space, create an experience for them, and really help them connect with each other and connect with the speakers and the workshop leaders in a way that that benefited their businesses and their uh, and their community. That's incredible. Also, I totally remember Hello Etsy, and I spoke at the Washington version, the Washington uh, local version of that. So may it rest in peace. May it, yeah. <laughs> Speaking of which, I was at the gym this morning and saw a television commercial for Etsy, and I about died. Wow. I, I yeah. I, I, I've just started watching the latest season of Making It, and it just it makes my little maker heart uh, warm and fuzzy. <laughs> All right. Now that I have hijacked the interview. <laughs> um, so looking back on that very first event, um, tell me about one thing that didn't go to plan that you would do differently today. Oh, wow. Um, there were so many things. I mean, as, as, a, as a, a newbie at organizing a large event, it's so much different doing a conference than it is, you know, a workshop. Um, we had multiple tracks with the workshops at the conference. So we had, you know, maybe six concurrent things going on. Um, we managed registration really poorly. There was a line around the block outside the venue in the rain in Portland, because that's what happens in Portland. Um, and we didn't have anywhere to put them until we were ready to open doors. Everything was running behind. It just, it was kind of a hot mess. Um, and I think that it, even though we had a lot of things go not quite to plan, the core experience still came together. And and the great thing about the maker community is it's very DIY. So so the attendees weren't like expecting this flashy production or mm -hmm. anything like that, right? Um, but that really kind of clued me into how important it is to think of those things in advance and to be a little bit more intentional about those moments that are not um, 
that aren't maybe front and center to the audience. So you often think about like, well, who's going to speak from the stage? What is that going to look like? But what about that downtime when people are waiting in line? How are you going to make that a better experience? So that's the kind of stuff that um, that I learned I needed to pay a little bit more attention to because it really makes a difference in what the attendees are getting out of it. Yeah, absolutely. Okay. I want to come back to that for sure at some point. Um, but let's get out of the past now and look to the future or look to the present anyway. Um, so now this is your life. You are producing and managing these events on a, on a smaller scales, but also on very large scales as well. Um, I imagine that a huge part of getting the project management right for a large event, uh, like a conference, is getting on the same page as your client when it comes to the vision that you're executing. Um, how does that initial conversation go down? How do you actually determine um, what your client is looking for in terms of the kind of event that they want to put on? Well, I think for me, it starts at the very beginning of the project. I really love going deep with my clients at the beginning. I want to understand the business model. I want to understand their sales funnel. I want to understand their target audience. How big is their audience? What do they respond to? I want to know everything there is to know about how their business or community or organization currently functions so that we can then design something that is tailored to all of that and that works and collaborates well with it. Um, so we do this strategic consult process before we even get into site selection or speaker uh, curation or any any of the kind of editorial stuff because we want to get on the same page and become really invested in what our clients are doing with their own businesses uh, so that we can then design the experience in a way that complements that. And so what that does, uh, that's that usually is like the first four to six weeks of any project that we work on. And at the end of that, we deliver back what we call an event game plan. And that's this long document. It's usually 10 or 12 pages where we go through and establish the goals for the event, the vision, any of those really strategic elements about why this is a good uh, match for their audience. And that document becomes a touchstone throughout the entire project that we refer back to as needed to make sure that we're staying on track. Oh, incredible. Let's talk about that a little more. <laughs> is that... Um, so, okay. So just to clarify that four to six week, um, consultation, and then the game plan that you're putting together, that's something that your client is paying for. Yes. So the way that we've structured it is that our, uh, the clients hire us to do the initial consult process. So that's a flat fee four to six week period. And that deliverable that they get out of it is the result of our work. It's a number of uh, consult calls with them where we ask a lot of really deep questions, very nosy questions like you ask, um, <laughs> where <laughs> I love nosy questions. Um, you know, we talk about numbers, we talk about profitability, um, and then we go in, do our own R&D after those calls to look at what other events are out there in the landscape. Is, you know, is their audience a good fit for this? Is it big enough? Things like that. And so we deliver that game plan document and accompanying that game plan is a proposal on how to proceed with full production. And if they decide to move forward with us on that, the cost of the consult gets credited to the full production services. Got it. Brilliant. Okay. So how much of that initial consultation is sort of like productized and templatized? 
Uh, a lot of it. Okay. <laughs> um, we have, uh, just in the past year, we've, we've really honed in on our systems and processes. And so we have, uh, kind of a template of questions to ask on those initial calls. Um, we've honed in on who our target client is and, and what some of those, uh, fit criteria are. And so we will discover that through, through these calls and through this research. Um, we have a template already set up for the uh, consult process or for the game plan document that um, that has all of the core elements. So we can just go in and fill in the blanks, if you will, uh, based on those conversations that we have. Okay, perfect. Thank you so much for sharing that because I, I think more people need to be doing exactly that. <laughs> it's really helpful. Um, so you've said we uh, quite a bit. Are you the main person that's doing these consultations, or do you have you trained other team members on how to do this process? Uh, so I have a, a longstanding habit of using the royal we, but in uh, this case, <laughs> in this case, um, I do have uh, one employee, my operations manager Nessa, who is a godsend and the glue that holds the company together. <laughs> um, so uh, what we've done is that's something, that's a process that we're both involved in um, because uh, I tend to lend the more strategic and uh, you know, the decade of event experience mindset to, to things. And then she helps pull together all the notes, all does all the research Um starts drafting the documents, things like that. Uh, and so that's something that we collaborate on pretty heavily. Okay, gotcha. You'll hear more about how Isaac Watson manages conferences and what happens when it's finally go time in just a minute. But first, a word from our What Works partners. First, What Works is thrilled to tell you about our latest project, 100 Days of What Works. Now, I've made some big changes in my life and business over the last three years, and each of those changes was fueled by new habits. Cultivating healthy habits in my life and business has been the key to weathering change, discovering greater peace of mind, and really feeling in control of my goals. Getting serious about my habits wasn't a whim. I noticed that every successful business owner I talked to, and I've talked to a lot of them over the years, had carefully cultivated routines and habits that worked for them. Now, they weren't always the same habits. In fact, some people's habits were wildly different than others, but everyone had habits that they relied on for stability, productivity, and peace of mind. Next week, What Works is rolling out a brand new experience designed to help you develop intentional habits for running your own business. It's called 100 Days of What Works, and it'll guide you through simple tasks to cultivate a habit of noticing and doing what works for you and your business. Over 100 days, you'll make a habit of paying attention to what works, analyzing why it works, evaluating your next steps, and planning for the future. You'll work on your practice of patience, consistency, restraint, and courage, all so you can see bigger results in your business with less striving and busyness. Each weekday, you'll receive an email with a prompt for reflection, analysis, or experimentation. Each assignment will take 20 minutes or less to complete. 
And once completed, you can share your work with other business owners nurturing their own habits and talk through what you're noticing with people who really get it. It's an immersive, collaborative, and interactive way to build a solid habit of doing what works, whatever that is for your business. To learn more about 100 Days of What Works, go to explorewhatworks.com slash 100. That's explorewhatworks.com slash the number 100. What Works is brought to you by Mighty Networks. Now, I'm going to go out on a limb and guess that you've already started growing an audience through social media, an email list, YouTube channel, or podcast. And that's what I did too. I gathered an audience around my blog, social content, and this very podcast. But you know, it always felt a little flat, a little one-sided, like I was shouting out into the ether, hoping someone would respond. Even though I knew thousands of people were paying attention, I didn't always feel connected to them. If I'm not connected to them, then it's hard to create content and offers that serve them. Then I found Mighty Networks. Now, what makes a Mighty Network different from anything else available is the way that it connects your people, not just to you and your content, but to each other, all in one place, under your brand, on every device. It means that your community on a Mighty Network gets more valuable to every member with each new person who joins. Not only do you have 100% access to each and every one of your members, unlike on some other platforms, but a Mighty Network is designed to spark connections and conversations between your members so they build relationships with each other and not just you. You start to see exactly how you and your business can help. You notice exactly what they need from you to take the next step, make a change, and transform their lives. Truly connecting with your audience is good for business and it's good for them too. Intrigued? It's time to get started with Mighty Networks. You can start your Mighty Network free of charge by going to MightyNetworks.com. That's MightyNetworks.com. All right. Um, let's get into the the meat of how actually planning and managing an event like this goes down, at least up until the point where the event is live. And I don't want to put you on the spot for like, just tell us everything, but I don't know how to ask the question other than, can you walk us through the different phases of actually planning and managing a large event? What does that look like on your end when you know, you're looking at your project management software or your planning? How do you actually figure that out and, and keep your client on track? So I I could go on and on about this for hours and totally. hours. Um, one of the things that I realized uh, about two years ago is that in the client work I was doing, the same things kept kept coming up over the course of the project. And so I at one point I sat down. I was actually in the process of writing up a proposal for a client, and I sat down. And I was like. I feel like there are clear phases here and I identified five of them and those became the basis for all of our project management for producing a conference. So I'll walk you through them um, and kind of give you the, the synopsis of what each one entails. So, um, as we work with our clients, we do that initial strategic consult. So once that's done and they hire us for uh, full production services, then we go into phase one, which is location and curation. That's where we really establish the foundation and the framework of, of the event by looking at uh, what the goals are, what the audience's needs are. Uh, we look at editorial themes. We start speaker selection. And most importantly, we're looking at site selection. Where and when are we going to host this event? 
Then we go into phase two, uh, which is identity and pre-launch. We're building upon that foundation that we set in phase one and through the strategic, strategic consult um, and doing any identity or design work, uh, building a website or uh, setting up a registration platform, uh, identifying the budget and a ticket matrix. So what are the different tiers of tickets you're going to sell and to whom and when are they going to be released? Uh, we develop the marketing and sponsorship strategy and we do all that prep for launching the actual ticket sales. Usually there's also a pre-sale, a private pre-sale involved in um, in that phase to get that kind of an initial batch of early adopters into it. Then we go into phase three, which is full launch and what we call early prep. Uh, so you're officially putting the event out into the world. It's public. You've launched tickets. You're executing the promotional plan. And then you start working on the nitty gritty event logistics, finding vendors, getting your food and beverage proposals, um, honing in on the tech needs, all that kind of stuff. Phase four would be heavy on design and those final logistics. Um, you're closing ticket sales at that point. You're developing all the designed elements from signage to swag to uh, printed programs, things like that. We're developing a run of show and a production schedule. Uh, those are the core documents that are going to help us execute everything. And we're finalizing all our proposals. And then at that stage, we're really ramping up on attendee communications mm -hmm. as, um, as the core way of getting those people who have bought tickets to your event to understand what to expect, to help them establish their own goals, and to get them ready to attend. Finally, phase five is showtime and wrap. And that's... <laughs> um, that we put them together because they they happen so quickly and yet they are so tied together uh so in the the that's usually like a month prior to the event leading to a month after the event we are finalizing all those documents executing all, on all of the prep work that we've done up until that point, uh, I like to hold a pre-mortem exercise mm -hmm. to try and identify any potential trouble issues. You may be familiar with one of those. Um, we do a post-mortem meeting, a debrief, do our attendee uh, surveys, thank yous, follow-up, um, and then we're doing any recap work, so post-production for any videos, uh, whether those are talk videos or recaps, reconciling the budget, and the final deliverable that we offer to our clients um, during that phase is what we call an attendee experience report. Mm. So we identify uh, three to four attendees during the course of producing the event uh, and interview them afterward to get a, a better sense, excuse me, of what their uh, actual experience was and then pull that together into a report that looks at the data we've collected, uh, the anecdotal experiences, uh, and pulls together an evaluation of how we did on meeting the event's goals and what we can uh, recommend to change or to keep the same going into the next year. Oh my goodness. <laughs> I feel like if anyone is thinking about hosting an event and needs a producer and they just heard you say that they would hire you on the spot because that is all amazing and brilliant and so thoughtful and intentional. And I have all sorts of questions. So um, my first question, other than phase five, which you defined timeline wise as, as one month before the event to one month after, what's the kind of timeline that you're looking at at those first four phases? Are they 
equal? How long does it take to get something like this off the ground? What does that look like? Yeah, so I, I should probably preface all this by adding some context that the events that we typically produce are conferences less than a thousand people, and they're focused on um, community leaders who have a, a large audience that they're trying to bring into an in-person space. Uh, we do really well working on um, creative design, entrepreneurial oriented events. Mm-hmm. And so in a lot of cases, we're coming into a project on the ground floor with our clients. So they've never done this before. And so when we first tackle a project like this, we're looking at a total timeline of about 12 months from start to finish. Okay. Um, when you get into repeat events and, and re-engaging with clients, then we're looking at about nine months from start to finish. And each phase, I would say, takes one to two months, depending on the variables surrounding the specific event. And sometimes they'll overlap a little bit too. Um, but that's kind of a, a good way to think about it, is that each phase takes about a month or two. Um, they run relatively sequentially and the total project timeline is nine to 12 months. Okay. Beautiful. So there are, there's a lot going on in each phase there. It's, just to my little brain that likes thinking about big picture things, like the details that must happen in each of those phases feel overwhelming to me. How do you manage those details? Is there a particular software or system that you use for that? And then does that project management evolve or change over the course of running through those phases? So we have been... uh... Like I said, we've been focusing really heavily on really solidifying our processes and systems. And what we've found is that at least so far, there is no one project management system that seems to fit what we do. Um, so we have a mixture. Well, and I will say the other element is that we tend to adapt to whatever systems our clients mm. are using. So, you know, we prefer to use uh, Google Sheets and Google Docs. Um, we have a client right now who prefers to use Dropbox Paper, but is still using Google Sheets for budgeting and things like that. And so we just kind of adapt to that um, and apply our own templates as best we can. Um, So we we do a lot around uh, client education and communication as we go. So um, when we start engaging with a client, we have a beautifully designed PDF that outlines all of the five phases, talks about the key milestones and deliverables in each phase, um, even talks about some of the emotional aspects to each phase, uh, because we've noticed that there's, you know, as you launch ticket sales, there tends to be a lot of anxiety because at the same time you're putting in a lot of deposits and you've got, you know, cash going out, but you may not have cash coming in yet. So just trying to address that uh, as early on in the process as we can. Um, and then it's, uh, really about just keeping, keeping things centralized. So having a core folder, um, in whichever you know, cloud service that we're using where the client can find all the documents. We're often working in a shared Slack channel uh, for communication on a day-to-day basis. And uh, and then sometimes we'll use uh, Airtable internally for uh, progress tracking. Um, I've had clients that want to use Asana, things like that. So 
that's not a very clear answer for you. I think the the real answer is it's kind of messy mm-hmm. and it continues to be, but we're trying to hone in on how best to work with people. Yeah, actually, that's um, not, I was going to say that's awesome because I'd love to talk more about that. It's not awesome. <laughs> You know, for obvious reasons, I think. But this is something that we're running into with Yellow House as well as, you know, originally, well, I should say, you know, internally at What Works, we have all these amazing systems laid out and organized inside of Notion. Um, But with our podcasting clients on the Yellow House side of things, we had originally thought, oh, we'll use these same Notion systems. But then we do really want to make it easy for the clients that we're working with. So then, you know, we, all right, you want to work in Asana? Great, we'll work in Asana. You want to work in uh, ClickUp? Great, we'll work in ClickUp, whatever it might be. And that's, I mean, that's good in so many ways, right? Because we want to make sure that they feel as in touch with the procedures that we are running for them as possible. And we want to make, we want to give them as much ownership over that process as possible without them having to do the work. But at the same time, it creates friction for us internally. It creates, um, inefficiency internally for us when we're switching between these systems that we don't have complete proficiency with where our systems where you know we have to double check oh where did this person put this thing where did this person put this thing oh that's right asana does this but clickup does this and notion does this and i i guess i'm curious what kind of friction you run into um kind of moving between those different systems in that same way uh i think it's easier for us as as a team of two people to adapt, I think mm-hmm. I think as uh, you know, I have a vision that that the company will grow um, into a small studio, and and I can already tell you that you know as I hire more people to work on our team, it's going to be more important for us to hold fast to our own systems. Yeah. Um, so right now we can adapt pretty well. Nessa and I are both very tech savvy where it's easy to, to pick up on new tools. Um, but I think r- the friction for us right now is, uh, I would say, largely around um, copying templatized stuff over to a different platform. So, you know, the transition between... Google Docs and Dropbox Paper. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, Dropbox Paper doesn't really give you the formatting uh, functionality that Google Docs does, and so that changes things a little bit. But at the end of the day, like these, the core information is the same. So um, maybe that's just my design background and and wanting everything to look really good. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Um, but uh, yeah, it, it. So I think it's. It's that um, the friction is in is in the mode switching between um, between platforms um, and whatnot. That said, uh, our current capacity is around three clients at a time, mm-hmm. um, and so we're never. It, it's not like we're having to do that on multiple times each day on a regular basis, Got at it. least at this stage. Yes, we're yeah, we're definitely to the place where it's, you know, if we're not managing multiple podcasts per day, then we're not doing our jobs. And so it's right. Yeah. So it's a well, I shouldn't say for me, it's not for me for Sean, it's a lot of mode switching, as you said, from system to system. Um, Mm. And even though the process is the same, just like with you, um, it, you know, your brain works differently, I think, in different pieces of software. And so that there, like you said, that's, that is really where the friction is. Um, Okay, let's talk about actually, 
managing the event itself. Because of course, there's all the planning and all of the managing that goes into the planning part of getting an event off the ground. But then there is the in your face, this is happening right now, shit is going down kind of stuff that happens during an (laughs) event, right? Um, What Talk us through that. What does that look like on your end? So one of the things that I just absolutely love about working on events, and this is partly why I decided to pursue this as my thing, is that intensity that Mm. builds around the on-site production. I am a power through kind of person. Like you, if, if I need to produce event and I need to work a 16 hour day to get there, I'm going to do it because that's what it needs and that's what it takes. And, you know, I'm not going to stop until I drop to the floor. Um, And And you're also a healthy person who that's okay for. (laughs) Yes. Well, relatively. I mean, I, <laughs> we won't get into personal exercise routines. But um, yes, I, I do. I am able-bodied enough to be able to do that. Um, and what's interesting, though, is that as, as a more introverted person, I definitely need that uh, recuperation mm. time afterward. And that kind of roller coaster of energy is both exhilarating and exhausting. Um, that said, uh, there, everything we do in the pre-planning process is intended to set us up to execute smoothly. And so that's where we lean on a couple core documents that we develop, uh, which are the run of show, which, uh, are really is a minute by minute who is on stage, what are they saying, how long do they have, um, what are the audio, video, and other production needs behind that experience to make sure that everything runs smoothly. Um, The second element is the production schedule. So that identifies all of the rooms that we're using. It identifies all the elements. We're talking about catering. We're talking about registration. We're talking about... um, uh, any kind of activity, um, changeovers and breaks, anything like that, where it's essentially a matrix that that identifies who is in charge of what and when it needs to happen um, so that that is our reference document. So everything we're doing in the planning process sets us up for that. And then when it comes down to actual showtime, we're leaning on those documents as our core pieces of information. Now, as you uh, may have experienced yourself, sometimes things go wrong. Uh, And the great thing about having those foundational documents is that that gives you a baseline to work off Mm. of. And then you can respond to anything. Uh, You have that freedom and flexibility to respond uh, to things that might come up. Um, So for that, we rely very heavily on group communication. So we're either leaning on a Slack channel or a WhatsApp messaging group if we need a smaller group of of people um, to communicate in real time. On larger events, we have walkie-talkies, um, backstage, we have a comm system that allows us to communicate with the sound booth and the video people and whatnot. Um, and then the other key element is identifying clear roles and point people. Oftentimes when I'm on site producing, I'm backstage managing the speakers and making sure that the run of show is executed well. That means that I need somebody front of house to handle the food and beverage and the, uh, you know, opening doors to a theater or um, managing any kind of 
external elements for the attendees. And so just knowing who that person is and, and really empowering them to ensure that uh, everybody there has a kick-ass attendee experience goes a long way to um, making sure that things go smoothly. Got it. So speaking of this, like the, the idea of making sure that there are clear roles and that, um, you know, the different responsibilities that, you know, need to be taken care of or taken care of by specific people. Um, you know, I thinking back to the event that you organized for me many years ago now, um, I know that you kind of, you spooled up a contractor team around that event. And then we had some volunteers that we um, also relied on sort of from my side of things. Are you operating things similarly now? Do you have a group of contractors that you work with regularly? Is it something now where you are relying more on the teams of the people whose events you're actually putting on? What does the team element look like for you now? There, there is definitely a team aspect. So there's, there's no way that I could personally produce uh, all of this myself. Um, and it, again, it's project specific. So in an ideal world, um, I would approach the actual production of the event by assembling a team of vendors. Um, you know, one of the more recent conferences I did, I hired a production manager to handle all the front of house stuff. Uh, I had a production assistant who was uh, kind of bouncing back and forth between the stage and uh, the front of house elements. I hired a content operator to handle speaker slides. Um, And then uh, Nessa was kind of remote support as needed Mm. um, because she works remote. So she wasn't able to be on site. Um, The, in, in another case, so um, I have another client, I'm going to the third year working on this conference with them. They've been trying to take on more and more in-house. Mm. And so they have um, their primary contact. Um, they're doing a lot of the design work in-house. They are um, doing a lot of the marketing in-house. And when it comes to actual event staffing, they call for volunteers from their staff to help out. And so their team will help with registration. They'll help with um, human wayfinding. They'll help with, um, they even did, they're a tech startup and it's, it's a half user conference. So they end up teaching the workshops as well. Gotcha. Awesome. And how does... Uh, well, I mean, you talked about the communication some, but I, I'm, I guess I'm curious how the makeup of the team impacts the systems that you're using on the ground. Mm. I, f- I feel like I'm saying it depends a lot. <laughs> that's fine. No, that's <laughs> because, great. Because, it, well, it really does vary depending on the size of the conference um, and the the scope of, of the content that you're doing. So um, in the case of um, this this tech client that I have, it's, um, a hybrid design and user conference for their software. So, um, they have a whole team of people working on leading the workshops and they're largely self-guided, but we had a core team from their operations side that were, uh, kind of concierge or wayfinding. Um, and so we were all in a, uh, in a WhatsApp group, to kind of throw messages back and forth as needed to ask for help or to uh, answer questions, things like that. Um, What I found is that um, in addition to identifying clear roles and point people, um, what really, really helps, especially if I'm working really heavily with client teams, is being very encouraging and positive in all of my communications. Mm. Um, Usually an end of day summary is really helpful to say, hey, 
great job, everyone. Here's what we accomplished today. This is a marathon, not a sprint. Here's what's coming up tomorrow. Um, you know, here are some of the the areas where we're going to need an extra kick of energy, things like that. And really focusing on human relationships as the core of what makes all of this work. Because a lot of, especially if these people aren't used to doing events, they don't realize how much energy they require and how much um, uh, interaction with people they require. And so helping maintain those relationships and keeping people happy and feeling confident and like they can, uh, you know, go the extra mile if they need to does everything to really, uh, make sure that the, the attendees are having a killer experience. Awesome. And before we start to wrap up here, I want to circle back to one thing that you mentioned very early on in the conversation, which is that um, you've started to get a lot better or and more intentional about looking for, uh, I guess those those the things that that fly under the radar. Like we think about what's going on on stage, we think about the catering, we think about um, ticketing and things like that because those are the front and center kind of things that you think about when you're doing an event, but the standing in the rain or, you know, not having, um, I don't know, but you know, those, those, those things that easily can, can get missed. Um, you said that you've become a lot more intentional about considering those things and working them into the plan. How do you do that? How do you ask yourself those or what questions do you ask yourself? How are you approaching an event to look for those things that could easily get missed? I think that a lot of my attitude toward that I developed uh, over the course of six years being part of the team that produces the World Domination Summit, um, mm. because that is an event that is wholly and entirely focused on the attendee experience. And so that really tuned me into thinking about that kind of stuff. And some of the ways I apply that into the work that I do with my clients now is, are um, thinking I really try to put myself in the attendees' shoes, especially, and I think this it benefits from the fact that I am also rather introverted. When I, uh, and I, I believe this resonates with you as well, but when I go to a conference, I have a really hard time meeting people. I need yes. something to do. I need a buddy to help kind of corral me socially and to introduce me to other people. <laughs> um, I... I had an experience attending a conference a number of years ago where I was completely overwhelmed. Um, I felt like these were my people, but I had no idea how to talk to them. And so I just tweeted with the hashtag and I was like, any tips for introverts? And somebody responded almost immediately and said, just come say hi. <sighs> and I was like, that's not how this works. No, <laughs> <laughs> That's the wrong answer. And so th that was for me that, that just made it, um, really important to to make sure that that in the work that I'm doing I'm creating a space where people who are shy who are not um, gregarious or uh, outgoing people have the comfort level to still have a good experience and so that that you know manifests itself in when I'm doing site visits um, I I really try you know usually when I go to visit a venue I've seen all of the like glamour shots on their website, right? I've mm -hmm. seen um, pictures of it in use. I've seen pictures of it empty. 
And so when I walk on site, I try to purge all of that from my brain and think about like from the second I step out of my car or, or get off of a bus or whatever that I'm thinking about like, okay, I'm an attendee right now coming into this for the first time. What am I seeing? What am I feeling? What looks different? Um, and you know, where do, where does my body want to go? Where's my eye going? Okay. If my eyes training to the left over here, because the space is really open, is that an opportunity to put a sign, um, that mm. helps direct me where to go? Um, if, uh, you know, are there, are there natural spaces where I'm going to want to st- Stop. Is that a good place for a registration table? So just thinking through that really carefully from the attendee's perspective uh, to make sure that I'm thinking through what they're going to experience on the day of so that we can set up for that. Brilliant. Isaac, what are you really excited about right now? Oh, I'm excited about so many things. (laughs) (laughs) Tell us about them. Um, Well, so I think uh, in, in... Going back slightly to the the transition from the royal we to the actual we, um, one thing I'm really excited about going into this next year is really taking on the executive producer role instead mm. of doing a lot of things myself and continuing to develop the systems and processes that we have been working on to to allow me to focus on my best work. Um, and that's usually at the very beginning of a project when we're doing a lot of heavy strategy and at the end of a project when we're actually executing. Um, so that's, that's one thing. Um, I, and in doing that, um, I'm excited that that's freeing me up to really pursue the sales process more fully. Mm. Um, and you know, funny enough, I used to think I hated sales. Uh, but it turns out after going through the proposal process and kind of the discovery phase with a number of clients with a business that I truly believe in and something that I really enjoy doing, it turns out I like it. (laughs) (laughs) Um, so, so being able to free up my own capacity to be able to do that business development is really important. Um, especially as we're looking to grow. And then for, for 2020, our, our big goal is to achieve financial sustainability. Um, we're doing okay right now, but I had kind of a wake up call, um, about, I think it was the beginning of last quarter, um, when NASA asked me how much I'd been taking home and I hadn't really thought about that Um. (laughs) and I did the math and it, (laughs) It's not very much. Like it was enough for what I absolutely need, but it was not at all what the executive producer of an event production studio should be making. Right. So um, that kind of um, gave us that, like, oh, we need to refactor some things. We need to be a little more intentional about our pricing. We need to be more methodical about the time we spend on things, um, so that we can actually hit our financial goals and and get to a place where. Uh, we're not essentially bootstrapping our way uh, to the finish line. Well, amen to that. Isaac Watson, thank you so much for sharing how you manage events, big and small, and um, just giving us all the behind the scenes, literally, on on how these events happen and and how you produce them as a business. That is literally what I do. (laughs) (laughs) Thanks for having me, Terry. I really loved it. Find out more about Isaac Watson and Kickass Conferences at kickassconf.com. Now that brings us to the end of our series on project management. 
catch up on any of the episodes you missed by finding What Works on Spotify, Overcast, Google Podcasts, or Apple Podcasts. Next month, we're turning our focus to leadership and specifically how, as business leaders, we have a unique opportunity to share our values through our businesses. You'll hear from diversity, equity, and inclusion coach, Erica Corday, the founder of MicroComp, Rob Walling, the founder of RebelCon, Shannon Siriano-Greenwood, and Melissa Urban and Dr. Carrie Coley-Murchison from Whole30. What Works is produced by Yellow House Media. Our production coordinator is Sean McMullen. This episode was edited by Marty Seafelt, and production assistance was by Kristen Runvik. Our theme music is by The Shrugs. Find over 260 more candid conversations about running and growing a small business at explorewhatworks.com. <laughs>